I'm with Rob Ryan here today, and Rob is a co-founder of Ascend, which uh, which had a great influence on establishing what we now know as the Internet. Uh, Rob, um, it's good to be with you today. Good being with you as well. So, uh, Rob, in the early days when Ascend was created, the, as we see the Internet today, it really wasn't around. So can you walk us through the, the vision that you have with Ascend Communications? So the vision actually uh, has to start a little bit earlier before we actually got into the Internet. We, we started as a company that was going to do communication-wide area networking uh, com uh, communication gear. And it was funded by Kleiner Perkins and uh, Greylock and NEA. <clears throat> and shortly after getting funding and actually building the first product, which was supposed to connect to a new digital service called ISDN, we discovered that the rollout of ISDN didn't roll out. So we had equipment, but it wasn't going to be able to connect to anything. So we began a reinvention. That was reinvention number one on the company. And we reinvented ourselves rather quickly into a bandwidth on demand uh, product. And that product uh, could build and shrink bandwidth. And we utilized uh, that product for video. But video at, back in those days was room video. And we provide the communication gears to shrink or add bandwidth for communication. And that had a, a, a pretty good run. Uh, grew a $16 million business, but that was topping out the size of that opportunity. And that's that point, the team and I uh, began a process of innovation uh, in a collaborative po uh, process, utilizing members of the team. And I called that the sunflower model. And we began to dig into our core competencies, understand them, and ideate off of those core competencies, and then began to vet uh, and discriminate between all the ideas that were generated by a, a whole model, uh, criteria-based uh, model. That actually predicted that our best place to utilize our core competencies was in this thing called the Internet infrastructure. This was uh, early 1990s. And now we begin the Internet infrastructure story. The second phase of that sunflower model uh, was what we called a walkabout, a deep, intense walk walkabout. So we did 180 internet providers. So you have to think of the internet service providers in the 1990s as small providers that were scattered around the United States. The largest provider was AOL. They had 200,000 accounts. They also were being sued by over a dozen attorney generals for uh, poor service. The other <clears throat> hundreds of internet providers had names like Barnet, Surfnet, and similar, PSI, Net, UUNet, and they were scattered all about. They had regional uh, areas that they serviced, and every single one of them was going bankrupt. And in essence, and this was in the mid-90s, uh, you were looking at a situation where the Internet was uh, converging rapidly to blackout. And if you look at any of the graphs on you know, the emergence of the Internet, you'll, you'll see, in fact, that was the case. It was flatlined in the early 90s, and then it started to peak up 
uh, Nike curve up in, the, say, the mid uh, to later uh, 90s. So if you're a curious type of person, you might have asked yourself, why all of a sudden did it go from flatline to the, to the peaking up? So <clears throat> that's the story that's going to unfold, and that's the story that actually has not uh, been written up in any of the history books on, on the Internet. You'll see... No, Rabbi, I, I have one, one question here. So to, to put it in context, uh, what we see today is we can get online and automatically we get into the Internet. But back then, when you said AOL had 200,000 users or a, a bunch of accounts, there was only so many slots that those people could go into. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So they, they had two um, very severe or two or three severe challenges technical and regulatory challenges that was preventing the scaling of the internet. One challenge was that they were priced at uh, voice call rates. This is about $30 a, a month that they could charge, so maybe three, $400 a year. It cost them to get a person on the internet at that point in time way over $1,000, close to $1,500, and the running cost and the maintaining cost was very high as well. So that business model was you could make maybe $300 and you could lose $1,200 and, and up. So the way they handled this incredibly uh, non-scalable business model is for every port on the Internet that uh, an Internet provider enjoyed, they had a blocking factor, they called it. And that could mean that 100 uh, subscriptions were sold for a single port. So imagine if you were in a restaurant and it had a limited number of tables, and they took reservations. They were 10 tables, let's say 10 seats, and they took re reservations, let's say, for 1,000 people. And people start showing up, and, of course, the first 10 sit down, and the rest of the 990 people are mulling around. And as, other, you know, as people get up, another person sits down. But basically... The service was you were being blocked. That's why the lawsuits were flying around uh, for the AOL. They probably weren't flying around for the smaller ISPs because they were already bankrupt. Uh, they were literally heading and converging in, in that direction. And the other technological problem uh, that they enjoyed was that they didn't know what was going to dial into them. So it could be modem, low-speed modems. It could be digital devices. What did that mean? So in their rooms where they accepted their calls and they serviced their region, they would have to guess what the mix of boxes were supposed to be. And each of those boxes, of course, would enjoy uh, one line coming into it. So maybe they'd guess that they'd have several dozen modems dialing in it uh, and maybe some ISDN and some DSL. But that mixture was always wrong. You know, you could never guess that. So the two issues of the mixture and the uh, scaling issue and the economics issue uh, created a, a paradigm, a conundrum for them that it was not a business, and hence there was no way to scale it. Now, during that exact same time, on the user end of things, the users were increasing their desire to use it. So you had a supply, a demand was increasing, uh, and that was being driven by email and porn. Um, but it, it was 
going up. And on the other hand, the ability to be fulfilled by the small internet providers was going down because they were converging to bankruptcy or, or lawsuit. So, so when, when you saw this problem and you were addressing it, you said uh, there, there seems like an opportunity to come in and to put in some type of device that will help to facilitate a lot more people to be accessing into the Internet. Yes, that's actually correct. In the second phase of our little analysis on my own company, there was a thing called the walkabout, which is similar today to what uh, people call lean. So we had a very intense uh, 169 interviews of service providers. And we used three or four team uh, members that were key founders in the company. And we, we had three or four questions that we would ask them. What would keep them up at night? And we got an earful on what was keeping them up at night. And I, get, I shared with you some of the that already. And what were the competitors doing? Who were they talking to? Who and was system, your competitor back so then? Cisco Systems, uh, Newbridge, NET, Ocatel, Lucent, uh, were all active in uh, in that space. And, and what I found out is every single one of them had engaged with these um, accounts and basically didn't see an opportunity there and or didn't have the wide area networking skills to address the opportunities. So when we compiled all the answers to all these questions, what we discovered is that on the one hand, you have a rising supply and need. On the other hand, they had an inability to deliver that, that service. They couldn't price the service in a way that they could uh, make money. The competition had completely abandoned the field. Uh, they had neither the skill set or the interest to be in the field. That's uh, the perfect trifecta for a startup. And um, we were a startup that was dead-ended in our business and was going to be sold. Um, so we were desperate as well as the ISPs being desperate, but in, in a slightly different way. We were just going to go away as a sale, you know, 2x our re revenue. So I was desperate to find an opportunity that could increase uh, you know, increase the company. And all of these things converged at the at the same time. And one other thing, which I hesitate to say this, but I am going to say it, I th I'd say destiny. Well, whose destiny? My destiny. Uh, my training was in math and physics, and all of my career planning and execution was in wide area networking and networking at Intel Corporation, at Digital Equipment Corporation, at startups. Everything was wide area networking. And so we had all of the tools uh, to, and my, all of the group of founders were alike in that we had all of the understanding of wide area network and local area networking. And we were at exactly at the right place at the right time. We absolutely needed to turn our ship or that ship was gone. And the rest of the guys were uh, desperate for a s solution, and the customers were crying for more s for more service. So that was the setting. Rob, where did the ISP address come from? Internet Service Providers, and that just an acronym uh, for Internet Service Provider. And the way you can think of the Internet Service Provider back then was like little tribes. 
and they were scattered all around the country, and they serviced a region. It might be a very small region, and the way they serviced that region is they had these uh, physical buildings called points of presence. In a point of presence, it may service a five-mile radius, and in that room, you would have equipment in there. If you had opened that room prior to Ascend, you would see a whole bunch of modem boxes and subcommunication so, boxes. So what you would have seen with the modem box is an actual phone number calling in. Correct. So Ascend changed the landscape of the ISP. Correct. By putting a different format of the of, of, of protocol yeah, so, so what Ascend did is, so let's say they had 100 boxes inside um, a point of presence, and each of them had many, many points of presence. Could be up to thousands, of, like an AOL. Uh, but say, take one. Let's say there are 100 boxes in there, and let's say 30 of them were V32 high-speed modems, uh, some were ISDN boxes, some were DSL boxes, and some composition. And they have wires to each one of them, so it, it's a it's a mess of wires and boxes. What we did is we said, we can take all of that mess, and we can make one box that looks like a small pepperoni pizza. It would have four high-speed trunks on it. We can then take those high-speed trunks for T1 trunks or T3 trunks later on. And we can logically subdivide those trunks up and allocate bandwidth any way you want and talk any protocol you want. So the issue of what kind of protocol they were calling in is gone. The issue of allocation of bandwidth is is gone. The issue of 100 boxes and 100 wires is gone. It's one box with four with four wires. So a whole host of issues. And, and finally, the economic issues was solved. We could provide that cost of service at a much lower cost rate so that they could scale the product. At first, they could drop that 100-factor blocking that they had down to you know, maybe selling two or three seats uh, you know, for, for one seat at the table, much more logical blocking factor that isn't going to have people um, screaming uh, almost 100% of the time. Now, there was a, a period of time then as you as you began to evolve this new product with the Sin in the pizza box that it almost didn't happen. And uh, you refer to it as blackout. What, what Can you give the story there and the, the perspective of what was going on? Yeah, so it was a desperate time. Um, you can check with the... Uh, ISPs, you could track them down. There's about 300. I've, I've actually talked with all of them ended up being our accounts. So I can actually talk with many of them. And they will tell you very point blank that they were going out of business. These were people in uh, Illinois, Chicago uh, area, uh, the Rockford, Illinois area, the Houston, Texas area. They were all, all over the place. And they were desperate because they really didn't want to go out of business, the little family businesses and such, because they could see the uptick of customers wanting the dog food, wanting the service, but then they couldn't provide the service in a way that they could uh, make money. So uh, they had no choice. They were, uh, you know, incredibly, they were borrowing money. They were doing everything they could to stay in business, but they were, you know, they were failing. And 
from our perspective, Ascend was also failing. The board had decided that the business that we had constructed, the bandwidth on demand, was going nowhere. It was going to sell the company for $30 million to a video a company, and that was the end of it. By the way, that $30 million was exactly 2x what they had put in, and that was what their contract called for, a 2x return before distribution to any of the employees, which meant that all the employees, all the founders got nothing, bupkis, for all of the work. And that didn't seem, um, that didn't seem very fair, and we had worked a, a long time. So we were also des desperate, so we had two sets of desperation, and the Sunflower process, uh, which was a completely uh, logical reasoning process that we had done, you can call it an early machine learning uh, process. It was a collaborative process that takes a community uh, of people and it mines their minds to see if we can find criteria and predictions of, of where we can take our competencies and enjoy some success, had predicted the internet infrastructure. We had followed that with that walkabout and it really reinforced us. So now we were at this stage of, okay, uh, what do we do? So we took this picture into the board. Uh, uh, before I took the picture into the board though, I thought, why don't I see if I can work with a handful of these ISPs um, and collaborate on what the product would look like. Remember, we didn't have the box to give it uh, to them. So we started to draw up uh, a product. And, and how did we do that? We took our old bandwidth on demand box, which uh, we had. It did have T1 spigots and all of that uh, on it. And we started to uh, take it apart, cobble it, cobble it, and, and talk about how we could cobble that uh, to uh, and put service, uh, put software on it that would solve some of the problems that they were facing. Um, so we were doing that in parallel. Didn't tell the board about it. But we were making very good uh, progress on on that, and we were collaborating with uh, UUNet and PSINet, and and then I asked UUNet and PSINet to actually pay me. I said, "Give me a check for two to four units." Uh, as an expression of love and desire and, 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 their, and their need for this. And I will never actually cash that, but I'm going to use that with my board to demonstrate that the dogs really want the dog food. And they did. They first said, how can you price it, Rob? What, you know, how do you price it? Um, and I said, well, you already told me what it was costing roughly per user, about $1,000 per user. And, um, and I said, we can provide that service for well less than that, and I priced it accordingly. And I priced it about $50,000 a box, and the box uh, was about $600 bill of materials. They were absolutely thrilled with the functions that the box was performing because it increased their capacities. Um, obviously, the gross margins on that were absolutely fantastic. The, the board got all of this information. When they looked at it, they thought, wow, this must be some sort of hoax at the last minute to you know, redu redirect the uh, sale of the company. Uh, but they actually followed it through. They talked to the ISPs themselves, and they realized that the opportunity was real and that the ISPs were very serious, and they had written these checks and purchase orders um, because they were very serious. And so the board gave us a one-year a stay of execution, 
uh, to see if there's anything we could do in this internet space. You know, Rob, I think in in context of this, though, as you built this out, there, the, the brilliance of this was introducing the sunflower. Because from a communication standpoint, people could Im immediately visualize the flower, and then you were able to break it into basically three component pieces. And, and you know, a lot of companies, when they're doing their critical thinking, the, one of the biggest challenges in communication is getting everybody on the same page. And so with the stage set to say, okay, now I have value at a price. Now we're going to move forward. Can you, can you walk us through how you use that sunflower within your organization? Because you're about ready to absolutely explode with growth. And in the explosion of growth, adding the new people, keeping people focused, how did that flower play the role, that model? So if you think of the flower, the flower is a great image, um, and the petals on the flower are your choices, opportunities, and the center of the sunflower is your core competencies that are used to build those choices. The stem of the sunflower are the external driving forces, such as the internet providers uh, faced, which regulatory forces, lack of technology, things that were outside their control. The Another way of looking at the sunflower is that it's a, a learning system, and it's an hourglass type system. So an hourglass is wide at the top, squeezes down in the middle, and widens out at the bottom. So wide at the top is the stage one, where you're collecting information on your competencies, you're collecting information on your choices, you're collecting information on the criteria by which you're going to judge all of this, and you're collecting a team to process all of this, the Sunflower team. And it then it creates a decision-making process, a predictive system, and it spits out uh, what your best opportunity is given your situation of competencies and what you told it about criteria. And it spit out the internet infrastructure. The bottleneck in the hourglass is where you go about the walkabout. The walkabout was extensive. This isn't two people that you talk to by email. This was 160 up close, face-to-face -face, uh, meetings around the country where we asked identical questions, all four of us, so that we had a base of comparing uh, answers. That took months and months, but what it did is we had an amazing amount of data that came in. It reinforced our criteria that selected the infrastructure. In fact, it reinforced it very heavily. In fact, new criteria popped up that was even stronger pointing, pointing to it. It got rid of the second and third place uh, choices. It put all of the team on the same page because they had done uh, those interviews, right? We each had 50 interviews or 40 interviews that we had to do. And they were out there doing these uh, interviews and they were hearing and seeing and getting the data and they were getting more and more excited. These were manufacturing, engineers, marketing uh, people. So now the team is uh, coalescing around and converging on this process that we had used in a prediction that it had made, and the prediction is looking really good, you know. Uh, and then the next phase was essential. That's the widening out phase on the bottom. What I did with the team is I said, so we 
we seem to have stumbled into a gold mine, but nobody seems to know the gold mine is there, or they know it's there and they don't care. So I would like all of us to think about king of. I said, what do we want to be? What do we want to be king of? And it's a whole concept of king of was, well, they started talking, what do you mean? And I said, go, do we want to be a king of uh, the internet or a subset of the internet? Or what would we like to be? And then, and we talked on this for a, a period of time, and we came out that we wanted to be the king of the entire worldwide internet infrastructure. That means every point of presence for every internet service provider worldwide, internationally, as well as domestically, would have Ascend equipment in there and be enjoying and using Ascend equipment, meaning that we will completely have locked out Cisco systems and all of the other competitors that from the inside of the internet, they would be relegated only to the outside on the edge of the, of the network. So when we made that statement, which is a bold and audacious statement for 30 people, we set about each of the team members putting a set of audacious goals down to reflect that. So engineering went ahead and did an 18-month plan on what products and services they needed to build, and rapidly sales went and said which accounts, and we, we named accounts, all of our targeted accounts were by name and by region. And we went through and put goals down, like nine out of 10 of these accounts or you know, five new uh, products that interface and interoperate in this area, very aggressive uh, goals in all of the departments. And we managed the company against these king of as measured by goals, meaning the board would see those goals and our progress against them, and the person responsible would stand in front of the board and talk. I just sat as a board member and listened as my team would one by one get up in front of the board. So complete transparency to the board on the progress on the execution. Well, this plan also emerged, the king of also emerged, all of the things that we had to do became things that were strategy, if you will. So if we said that we had to fill in a whole host of wide area networking interfaces and make them interwork, that became a strategy we called any to any, meaning that we would do any interface, we'd make them work at any point in time with any other interface, so that was the any any strategy. If sales said we're taking every international country and getting certified, that became known as the international strategy because certification in countries is hard. It would be harder and harder for any competitor to crawl up and attack us if we had all the international certifications as well as obviously playing domestically. And then a, another strategy we concocted in engineering and sales was an inside-outside strategy, very similar to Microsoft. Microsoft built the uh, operating system early on, and then they would tell everyone, no, we're the one, best one for you to buy the spreadsheet from or the word processing system. What we did is we had the inside of the internet, and then we started build, building edge routers. We put special features in the edge routers only work with our equipment uh, inside. Your edge router, your competitor, yeah, it would work with our boxes for sure. But if you want special features, you would have to buy our edge router. So that launched us, that was called the inside-outside strategy or the Trojan horse uh, strategy. And we went from zero to 40% market share in the edge router business. So at that point, we were controlling the inside of the internet, 90% uh, market share, 
and we were attacking the outside of the internet where Cisco was dominant and taking away about 40% of the outside of the internet. All in all, we were a real PIA for, for Cisco Systems and a number of other uh, companies. You know, Rob, I wanna, I wanna roll back. Uh, there's a lot of people that are critical thinkers or trying to launch your companies and then they get to the exponential possibility for exponential growth and they they fall on their swords. They're not sure how to do it. So here you were, 30 people playing king of, and you have these big audacious goals of we're gonna move forward with this. However, it was gonna take a lot more than the 30 of you to, to get this done. How did you decide who do we hire? Who do we need uh, in order to start filling in the gaps to move this forward, to execute the strategy? So that's a great question, too. So as you can see, we were, fa we were fairly analytical in our uh, systems and uh, a bit contrarian in the way we kind of moved around. Uh, we did the same thing when it, when we were getting to the expansion mode and trying to add assets and resources. I decided that um, a, a fallacy that companies make and startups make all the time is they look at that measurable set of goals that have to be done and they say, oh my God, we need 15 of those and 12 of these and 18 of these. and We didn't do anything of the kind. We never added uh, multiples like that. At best, at Ascend, the the goal, it, it operated this way. You would come in and say, I need three resources to you know, implement our, my audacious segment of my goals, and I'd, or, or I can't do it. Um, and I had this discussion with many of, of people, and I'd say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm really sad. And you'd say, well, what are you sad about? Well, I'm sad you're quitting. I said, and the guy would say, I, 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 didn't, I didn't say I was quitting. I said, well, yeah, it sounded like you were, you were quitting because you said you couldn't do it unless you had three more resources. And I'm not going to give you the three more resources, so therefore you're quitting. Uh, no, no, I'm not quitting. I said, oh, okay, well, why don't you just go back to work and work on the, on the stuff, and I'm going to try to get you one resource. So imagine that now replaying out over all of the different functions. It became a paradigm inside of the company that everybody understood that very, very well. Rob is not going to give you three or 10 resources. He's going to go through that exercise. So you go and prove to him that you're worthy to get one or two X you know, resources. So what that paradigm did is we were so cost efficient. The, how that reflected itself is, uh, and you know these uh, measures quite well, but revenue per employee and profit per employee were off the charts. It was the highest in the United States revenue per employee and profit per employee. And we kept the company incredibly lean with that philosophy. As we grew, we were doing like 1.7 million revenue per employee. We were a hardware company and about 900,000 profit per employee. Our profit per employee was almost two or three times more than many companies revenue per employee. So you could see how well the company was oiled and how well it was executing. And we just continued that, uh, don't let it get fat. Don't think you need 30 of anything. You don't need 30 of anything. Go start the, the work and we will possibly add one, you know, uh, you know, to, to it. And it became 
people would tell each other, don't bother to go into Rob's rooms. This is exactly what, what will happen, you know? And so the culture begins to get set uh, as a very aggressive culture that uh, doesn't think it needs, you know, several divisions of troops. It feels that it just needed a, f a few more good men and women. It, and I constantly was looking for A's and I, I refused to start looking for B's. So I was always on the hunt for A's, not B's or B pluses. I wanted this, this early team was taking on the biggest of all challenges. So I wanted an entire team of A's. And I was constantly in arguments with my VPs that it's impossible to find all, you know, all A's. And I said, well, we have to be patient. You know, I'd rather wait a little bit longer and get an A than to get two B's. How did you decide who got to come in and be part of the teams? So that's an interesting question. Deciding who actually, uh, makes it onto a sunflower analysis is the very first decision you have to make because you know you could have put any subset of the 30 people or all 30 people what i did is i wanted not titles there were no titles in in the room and they're probably the worst people to put in vice presidents and you know that uh, i was a decision maker so i can certainly make the decisions i put in the lead engineer uh, who also ran my engineering, but even at then her title was, you know, manager of engineering. It was no fa fancy title, but real pepper pot, understood hardware, understood software, under understood the accounts uh, very well. I put Jay in, who really understood the accounts uh, inside and out, another co-founder. I put the manufacturing guy because we got to build these things. Um, so I put a, representatives that were really the movers and shakers. Think about it, a company. If you're in a new company, you get in a company, you're befuddled, and you ask around and they say, oh, you need to go talk to Joe. You got to find the Joes of the corporation. They're in every department. They're not necessarily a titled folk, uh, but they're the ones that you go out and you need to go talk to him. You want him on your team. Those are the people that you want to pull into the sunflower exercise. That, and you have to have the decision maker in it, meaning the one who could uh, hit the button, say, let's go with this. That would be me. I participated in the Sunflower as just an ordinary participant with no further rights than anybody else, completely democratic uh, process. I had one vote. They had a vote. I, uh, there was no bullyism that was going on to uh, influence their votes or me pontificating on my favorite direction or non-favorite direction. That isn't actually how my mind works. My mind is actually a hungry mind for learning. So. I like the fact that I'm getting uh, more more data uh, and uh, giving us a better set of choices and, and potentially a better out, uh, outcome, which it certainly turned out that, that way for us. Do you recall that team of 30, what that expanded to within the first year of executing the king of? Oh, yeah. The, the headcount started uh, really moving up into the hundreds and many hundreds, and then uh, over a handful of years, we were thousands, you know, 5,600 uh, employees. But everything gets set in the early 100 people. Um, that early 100 people and the excellence of it and, you know, frankly, the plan and the execution of the, of the plan really set uh, everything in in motion um, for the company. And 
we reaped the benefit of that. And with that sunflower process, had it told us that uh, there's a number one, number two market space that we could enjoy. So we went and attacked the other number twos and number threes uh, about a year after. So we picked the, the petals off one at a time, and they they became, first one became multi-billion dollar market. The second one was hundreds of millions, and the third one was, you know, maybe a $200 million market, but we were picking them off one at a time, leveraging our core competencies in our, our hardware and software. About two-thirds of all of our hardware and software was leveraged. We were always so leveraging our channels. Uh, we had massive channels that we had put together so we could leverage those channels and introduce new products into the into those channels. Uh, <clears throat> now, Rob, from an operational standpoint, it costs money to grow. And because you were doing value-added pricing, uh, you didn't immediately have to go out to the investors or take outside capital, did you? I, that is correct. We didn't take any capital. We grew off our profits. And so uh, the funny story, Ellen, is that the board insisted on that same issue, they said, you're going to need capital. And I said, I don't need capital. I'm running off my profits. And there's a huge ar argument. Well, they won that argument. And so they, they wanted to put, they wanted to buy more SN shares, right? And they put another $11 million into the company and bought more shares at a very low valuation by the buy. And that $11 million was never touched, never touched. So $17 million was put into Ascend in the course of Ascend. Eleven was still in the bank. The six, three was on the aborted product, and three built the entire, you know, worldwide internet. Three million. Uh, and, you know, I understand the board's uh, need to have a comfort zone because of the statements that you made, but we honestly were funding the scaling through our profits. Which, uh, which was a proven model. Now, Rob... In, in 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 context of this all, you uh, as you begin to scale this company, it, eventually those investors wanted out; they wanted to cash in. So you did that through was it the IPO or how yeah, did they? About uh, f exactly five years after we founded the company, we uh, did an IPO. Morgan Stanley. Um, I think Piper Jeffrey and, and um, Montgomery Robert, uh, yeah. uh, took us public. Our valuation, you know, hold on to your socks, uh, Miss, was $130 million uh, going out. We were a profitable company, had been profitable for four quarters. We were doing about $35 million and going towards $160 million, and that's the number we got. Um, we went out in a very short order, probably a year, a year and a half, the stock started to split one time, two times, three times. There was a lot of very happy investors. You know, people like myself and the founding team were a little unhappy. I mean, look at that valuation compared to valuations uh, of today for companies that don't enjoy the same profile uh, of revenues and profits and opportunity, frankly. But in any case, that was the story. And then, you know, the company kept executing, the revenues kept going up 150, 600 million, 1.2 billion, 2.6 billion. And then five years later, 
uh, AT&T Lucent um, made an offer that nobody could ignore. There had been many offers along the five years, but this offer came in at uh, $24.3 billion to buy the company, which was, uh, I think, about eight times uh, projected uh, re revenue uh, for the following year. And um, we accepted that uh, that offer, and it became an AT&T Lucent uh, company. So exactly 10 years after its inception, 1999, it was conceived by me in 1989. That record still stands today as the largest exit for a uh, startup company out of Silicon Valley. That is correct. For a venture-backed uh, startup company, it is still the standing record. Uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, uh, with all of the great companies that are and, in Silicon Valley. And you got out right before the dot bomb hit. I also <laughs> had the luck of getting out uh, just right before the dot bomb. Um, my wife and I just weren't greedy, and I, I said every 13th of every month we sell X shares regardless. And that was kind of a clean way to do it. So it was up, down, indifferent. I didn't even look at it because we were just selling the shares in a rigorous way. I didn't want to ever incur the SEC or any insider trading comments. And if you looked at how we traded, the, you'd say this guy is just trading the same amount on the same day, regardless of price and no timing, no, no nothing is going on. This is a good way to do it. I mean, can could you optimize? Maybe. But I don't really think that you can optimize. I mean, things are mercurial, so I think this was a very good way to do it. Now, during that period of time, you had a competitor, Cisco. How did Ascend line up with their model and Cisco? So, uh, recently, I actually met an early 100 employee of Cisco who was in charge of uh, a lot of their support and customers, in fact, their top 2,000 accounts, and he was giving the view of uh, Cisco had of Ascend which was a very interesting uh, view. Basically, it said, you know, we had crushed or eaten or um, bought every company except Ascent. And we were trying to f figure out, you know, what was going on. He said it became a topic of a half an hour executive CEO meeting every day. Uh, Ascend and Cascade were the topic uh, every day. And I thought, how amusing. So it was very funny talking with him at a recent uh, fishing event. Well, we lined up in the following way. Their core competencies uh, were really uh, strong in the routing world, uh, tons and tons of routing protocols, um, and we couldn't compete in that. But we didn't have to compete in that because we only needed what the uh, internet needed. In the wide area networking space, we had tons and tons of wide area networking protocols, and they couldn't compete with that. Then there was network management and other things, and neither one of us had any great offering to shake at, but we both had offerings. So it appeared like there was a tie, but it's not really a tie because the internet only required that uh, a limited uh, set of protocols that they enjoyed, whereas they did not have any of the protocols suites in the wide area networking. And the wide area networking has another joyful thing that you have to go through is you have to get uh, and internationally especially certified. And every time you change the board or the hardware or the software, you have to get recertified. So a certification in France or the UK or wherever is a real roadblock because an American company is not isolated, it sells around the world. So we could go in and say, you know, we 
you can use any kind of communication device you want, and you can do it in any country you want. And here's here's our book of certifications. We had a three-ring binder, and they could go through our, uh, through our certifications. Cisco, first of all, didn't even have the product in domestically to compete with us. And then, of course, they didn't have the product um, internationally with the certifications. So they were somewhat desperate. They started to give routing deals, you could uh, get a big discount on their routers if you would wait for them to catch up on the on the, on the the internet stuff. And that would have worked. Uh, but un if, uh, unfortunately for them, the internet was exploding and no nobody could wait, right? That you couldn't sit there and wait because your competitors were building out their networks and everybody was building out their networks at a rapacious uh, rate. And I, whenever I was dealing with any CEO, would say, oh, yeah, you can wait, but uh, I trust you. All of your competitors I'd name, they're not waiting. Um, you know, So you do whatever you want. And they, you know, a couple of days later, they, the order would come in for the, for the unit. So there, there was no waiting going on. And they were bringing us, like AOL's order is a $300 million order, for example. Huge orders from Microsoft Network, AOL, from all the telephone companies were, were coming uh, in. And they, the, the placement of those units took time, right? You didn't build out a network in uh, two days. Uh, it, it was an interesting business. We, we had smaller ISPs that were still around, and now they were healthy. The big guys that you now know and love and use, they didn't come in until much later, so the, the internet would have been way blacked out. They weren't even in it. AOL was the biggest guy, uh, and they had 200,000 uh, customers in that time frame. It was an interesting you know, a set of trifecta that happened, sort of destiny of Ascend and myself and, ba and background, you know, the hunger of them for a solution, the hunger for Ascend to do something rational, to have a business, it all converged at the, at the same time. Who developed, if you look at the telephone today and you go to different countries, you find that the the pattern, the number of digits it takes to make a phone call is not consistent from country to country to country. Who developed the ISP standard on the, on the protocol? Well, there's a, you know, the standards get promoted. In odd, and did Assembly ways. play a role in that or how did that, with your pizza box? Uh, we played roles in, in promoting standards, uh, and obviously standards that we would like like to see. Um, and it's a, that becomes, as you would imagine, a fairly political process. Um, and each country utilizes that so somewhat as a weapon. Um, you know, they they don't really want to be exactly the same. France doesn't want to be exactly the same as UK or Germany or the US because they used it to prevent communication suppliers such as myself and others from actually competing in the in the country um, plain and simple and the hurdles that they uh, would put up are, were severe I mean it could take you six months to 18 months to get a certification that's a long long time in the speed of silicon space right that's a long time but now on the other side of the coin if you do get those certifications it's a big barrier for competitors right because it's going to be a long long time for them as as well it, it the hodgepodgeness of the communication world uh, in terms of the standards the interpretation of the standards 
created a huge opportunity that I defined inside of the company as any-to-any. -any. Try to make all these things interwork. Amazingly enough, there were communication standards that didn't work with another communication standard. And so the, the art and purpose of communications, at least that's what I thought, was to communicate. So we actually made it, so we interoperated. And believe it or not, most of our competitors would pick one sort of standard and say, you know, we, we deploy this, it's the best standard. We wouldn't do that. We would be agnostic. We would say, uh, we're going to do them all. We're doing them all. We have them all, and we make them all into work. That was a huge decision. They made a real strategic error when they were picking favorites. We picked no favorites. We were Switzerland. We were agnostic, and we, we, we did them all and made them into work. Very strategic move. You know, it, it, rolling back into the history of time, this was also the era where they were converting from a, a VHS tape over to a, a CD-ROM. And and they weren't quite getting the format of the CDs correct because everyone wanted proprietary. I think the brilliance, though, is what Ascend did is is making things user agnostic. And as you you put your box in there, said, "Don't worry about it. Put our box in. We'll handle getting everything in a uniform basis and get you connected up." And I think that was. A secret sauce that you guys did. It was a secret sauce. In allowing sauce. it to, uh, to, and to, to that happen. That secret sauce, by the way, and this is a lesson for young entrepreneurs, is I could value based price uh, and really value based price. I didn't price on my bill of materials. My bill of materials pretty low, but the pricing on the equipment was very high because what it was doing was this magic, right? And, and the magic that they truly needed and nobody else had, had done this any to any and all the confusion was being deconfused from, from the uh, space. And I charged for it. And as, as time went on, competitors would pop up with uh, boxes that were half or a third of our uh, price. And, you know, I would always tell the accounts, you know, go ahead and test them out and try them out. See, see if they actually give you the same kind of interplay that you actually have right now. And uh, I believe you'll be back um, and we'll welcome you with welcome arms. And um, that always happened. You know, they test out and they'd come back a couple of weeks later and say, you were right. Um, here's our order for X units. Um, you know, the strategy is when you produce something that, first of all, is uh, your the market is exploding. You have solved a huge hard problem. You priced it very, very aggressively and expensively. The barrier to entry for competitors is enormous. It's like climbing Mount Everest. Uh, I was told by venture people at the time that they were not funding any startups against Ascend. So think about that. Silicon Valley, not funding startups if your business model was to, to attack Ascent. Wow, I, I imagine Cisco at some point had that same thing where you, they wouldn't fund startups to attack Cisco. And then I didn't have to deal with 10 or 15 really great uh, startups and all of their young engineers. I, I'm a, I can focus on the big behemoth companies and what, and what, what they were doing. Uh, it, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling, something like the Warriors. So, you know, the Warriors build this core team. They're really good. It's then 
easier to maintain, you know, the warrior dominance. They may lose an element, but they still have three elements, right? And they just add one or two new ones, and they're right back there. And that was a similar kind of kind of thing. Or the 49ers. Oh, I love the analogy of the Warriors. So that's really. And, and you recently went to a Warrior game, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm a. I'm a real fan of the the Warriors. Warriors uh, came, and the Warriors owner was a Kleiner Perkins person who uh, Kleiner played a good role in his set. He was, and he was a venture capitalist who had reviewed my uh, plan, my Ascend business plan. And as I told him, the money he made on Ascend probably built, you know, bought the Warriors, you know? Uh, now, now, Rob, there's a story of the value that you put in the quality control of uh, these little pizza boxes that you want to make sure that they didn't break. And could you could you tell us what happened with the UPS guy? Yeah, so we were having, uh, Sprint was one of our accounts, and uh, we were having a lot of dead-on arrivals. Um, and this is an expensive box, and dead-on arrivals is totally unacceptable, and there were a lot. So I went in, and I had an uh, intuition that the it was due to our packaging. And I went into shipping and receiving, I was watching UPS, uh, you know, picking up boxes and they were tossing the boxes into the back of the uh, truck. And these boxes were kind of flimsy, like pizza boxes wrapping our hardware. And I was thinking, oh, this is not so good. So I, I always look to minimize the amount of writing and pontification and, and dramatic visual uh, symbolic types of things stick in people's heads. So I picked up one of the boxes and the, all the team and shipping receivers around me, and I think the VPN manufacturing was with me, and I raised it over my head and I crashed it into the ground. I threw it as hard as I could into the ground, and then I stomped on it for good measure like a, a, a berserko gorilla on top of it. And I asked uh, one of the people to pick it up and, and just shake it, because I said, I think in theory, if you shake it, we shouldn't hear anything, right? Um, and of course, when he shook it, you could hear parts rattling around in the, in the hardware case. And it was now a dead-on arrival box. Um, and I said, you know, uh, I think we uh, QED'd that one quite easily done. I think in two weeks, I'll come back I'd like to have a nuclear box uh, done, and I'm going to repeat this and probably jump an extra few times on top of it. And when I came back in two weeks, they had built incredibly beautiful packaging. I don't think uh, elephant jumping up and down on it uh, would have actually changed. And our DOAs uh, went to almost to, to zero. Uh, and the customers, of course, are, are delighted, but these these uh, symbolic uh, actions and visual actions were kind of my style. I mean, if... okay. Well, Rob, I appreciate you uh, sharing the thoughts today and the the emergence of Ascend and the blackout, and uh, appreciate you being with us in American Dreams. Well, thank you.